0: You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach Bruce Eckfeld.
1: Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Paul Jarvis. And Paul is a writer and designer and is the author of Company of One. We're going to learn a little bit more about his background. We're going to learn about the book. I'm excited about this conversation because you know when we look at helping people scale their businesses, one of the first things we ask is, should we? You know, Really, what is the motivation? And is that really the best option the strategy? And so we're going to talk to Paul a little bit about uh, his thoughts on that. I'm excited for it. Paul, welcome to the program.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: So why don't we start with professional background, just kind of understanding how you got to where you were. What area did you come out of? I know you've been a writer and a designer for a while. Give us a sense of the path that you've been on.
0: Yeah, so I've worked for myself for 20 years now, and... I didn't actually want to work for myself. That was never the plan. (laughs) (laughs) Funny how that works. I think I was an accidental (laughs) entrepreneur. And so I was in university and I didn't really like it. I had been building websites kind of on the side. This is when the internet was just starting in the mid-90s. And an agency figured that, hey, they could make money off of selling their print and media clients' websites. Mm -hmm. So they found me. I had a website that was ridiculously popular at the time. It was in Wired magazine and stuff. It was Mm -hmm. like... It was Urban Dictionary before Urban Dictionary existed. Got it. And so they started to talk to me and they were like, hey, why don't you come work for us? So I did. But I liked the clients and the the work that I was doing. I didn't like the company. So I was actually going to go find another job at another agency. But the day that I quit... All of the clients from that agency started calling me and saying like, hey, Paul, <laughs> where are you? I think they were more excited to work with me than yeah. to work with the rest of the agency. So they're like, where are you going to go? Yeah. We'll follow you. Yeah. I think I got like four of those calls and then a light bulb went off and I was like, maybe I don't need to yeah, go to the library you you to look to up a resume. Yeah. yeah, maybe I can just go start a business and yeah. so yeah that's how I got started and it was all uh, it was all design and online business consulting yeah. in the beginning because that was this was the 90s this is people didn't know all of that yeah. stuff so it was uh, yeah it, that's kind of how it got started
1: not the first time I've heard the story of accidental entrepreneur <laughs> you know typically around this area where someone has a, you know a really kind of an expertise a skill uh, you know a capability that is well sought after and they like doing what they're doing but they really don't think about the business side as much. You know, but they're they're kind of given enough of an opportunity; that they're willing to kind of risk it. I guess. What were some of the challenges? I mean, typically, what I find in those cases is the actual kind of business side of that can be you know either daunting or kind of a pain for a lot of folks that really just want to do creative work or focus on the product. How did you navigate that that kind of challenge or that process?
0: Yeah, and it was a challenge, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, because I was so good at the work that I did. I was really yeah. good at being a designer. I was really good at Um, Working with clients and doing the work that I was getting paid to do at an agency. But I didn't know all of the business thing. I hadn't gone to school for, I went to school for computer science and artificial intelligence. There's no business courses. There's a lot of philosophy courses. (laughs) There's no business courses. So I was thrown into the deep end of like, this is running a business, this is managing accounts, this is doing accounting, this is dealing with legal, this is dealing with late payments. And that was tough. Like, that was really, that made me almost stop a bunch of times in the beginning. I think I had this idea that because I was a creative person, I didn't need to worry or think about all that stuff because it wasn't enjoyable. I could yeah. just kind of hope the business runs on its own. And what I didn't realize was that if I set up like very specific systems, very specific mm-hmm. processes, taught my clients how to be good clients, that would free up my time to do the creative work that I wanted to do in the first place. Yeah. So I really started to hammer in on what's the best process, what's what can we do to make this the most efficient process? How can I replicate making one project good and make the next one even better and the next one even better? And I really started down the path of becoming actually more interested in the business side of things than the design side of things after a few years. Hmm.
1: Well, it's almost, it, it sounds like you almost business became kind of a creative problem to solve.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And
1: the two things I find around that the one is how kind of how to set up the systems and kind of the steps and the templates and the frameworks, like kind of how to how to systematize things. The other one I find is how to really kind of pick the right customers, you know, because it's kind of a, you know, a system, a system works when the input to the system is consistent and the same, and then you can process the same way. How did you go about finding kind of the right people to work with? And and to the extent that you've got stories or cases of the wrong people making it into into the process, like, how did you extricate them, or what was the process of kind of identifying and dealing with those things?
0: Yeah, and that's been something that I have honestly thought about a whole lot because I think that a lot of times people are just so willing to, oh, there's somebody wants to work with me, that's gonna be money. Yes <laughs> let's yeah, let's do it. Yeah. and chasing money, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. Like I've even gotten flack from people because I, I've always been told people to be selective with their clients and people have pushed back and said, well, that's okay for you because like you have a successful business. And I'm like, no, that's why I have a successful yeah, exactly. business. Exactly.
1: Well, it's a chicken like, and the egg. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So being huh. selective and making sure so for me, it was always, I wanted to make sure that. That there could be a win on both sides of the equation. I wanted to make sure it was work that I really wanted to do with somebody who I was able to communicate with effectively and efficiently before money was involved. So having like onboarding calls, I found were really important. I really built uh, an automated onboarding system, but there was definitely a person to person conversation before we move forward. But also just looking for what's the type of client that I can help the most? What's the type of client where the project can have the most impact or or be set up for the most success. Because if your clients succeed, then you're going to succeed off the tail end of that because you're going to be the person that helped them get where they are in their business. And I ended up working with quite a few clients and entrepreneurs who, who ended up doing really, really well. And yeah. I definitely saw a lot of business <laughs> yeah. from that, especially because what I was doing was helping them with their web stuff. And at the bottom of all their sites said like website design and development by Paul Jarvis. Wow. And as they were getting like thousands and tens of thousands and millions of page views. Yeah. I had that little link at the bottom of the screen. So that was, yeah, that was supremely helpful to be picky.
1: You know, was this a brilliant strategy on your part or, you know, kind of blind luck that happened to work out that way? Like what was your...
0: Well, I had a bunch of bad clients like in the beginning, like when I struggled in the beginning, not with the work, but with the with the like business side of things. I had clients that, that didn't pay me. I had yeah. one client who... Just continually didn't pay me. It was six, it was something like thirty thousand dollars over six months, and I kept doing the work. And because I didn't want to lose the client, but then I realized I'm like, I'm training this client that even if they don't pay me, I'm still going to do the work for them. Yeah. So this doesn't like this doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. We always say that we we uh, <laughs> we'll get the behavior we tolerate.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, and like if we don't have if we don't set boundaries, if we don't communicate. What will work and what will not work for, for the project at the onset? Then there's going to be a communication breakdown, yeah. which can definitely lead to not getting paid.
1: Yeah, so like I think all of this is you know actually super applicable to any business, <laughs> not, not not just you know you know individuals, creative, uh, you know technical individuals that are looking to build their own practice, but really any company you know needs to go through that process, figure out what is the system for delivery what is our target customer? What is our core customer? How do we filter them in the prospecting and onboarding process? You mentioned that you had some kind of automated stuff. Any insights or things that you learned about how to... like What questions to ask when and how to really make that efficient and effective in terms of a prospecting onboarding process for clients?
0: For sure. So when I was doing service-based work, I would put two things on my website that really was the... A way to filter out most people and just get the right people. The first one was project start at this price. Just so if they thought that they were going to spend $500 and I was charging $5,000, we don't need to have a conversation if our budgets are so far out of sync. The other thing that I would put on my website is I'm currently booked For X amount of time and I'm booking new projects for like three months from now, four months from now. So one that sets expectations 2 they're going to have homework to do before the project starts. So I really want them to be aware of it. And three people want to hire people who are in demand. It's just such a social signal that, oh, you mean you can start the project today? Why? (laughs) (laughs) Why why aren't you busy (laughs) And I think that in, in doing those three things, it really just like a lot of times clients are OK to wait, especially when they know like, oh, I have to get this, this and this done before the project starts. You have a an, a welcome document that has all the, the steps, all the processes like, OK, this makes sense. Yeah. and it just really set projects up for success. And it really filtered out if people couldn't follow directions in onboarding. I I just always thought like, they're not gonna be able to follow the process that we that I have set in place that I know work because I do this over and over again, whereas they may only hire a designer once or twice in their career or in their business. And that's not a focus for them. This is what I do for a living. So I need them to kind of understand that there is a process and the process is in place. So we get the best results. So both of us, both parties yeah. get the best result and the best work product from yeah. it. It's a
1: match. Like you, you need a good match. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to do, um, make all of my prospects go to one of my like half day or one day workshops, just because it was two things. One is if they couldn't figure out how to organize their schedule to a workshop, like if their schedule was so crazy, they couldn't figure out how to get to a workshop. That was a flag for me. The other one is I got to see how they interacted with other people. So, you know, in a group setting, you know, how do they communicate? How do they participate? And that gave me really good indicators on how they might be, you know, as a client. And so, yeah, I think having some way of kind of Filtering, testing, you know, courting clients, you know, and, and evaluating both ways. It's not just them evaluating you; it's you evaluating them. Is smart, and like I said, it's really smart for any business, but particularly when you're dealing with you know service th- things that are of somewhat personal nature, where you're interacting with them one-on-one at on some level, is pretty critical.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: And you worked with some pretty interesting people on the, on the web and web strategy, digital strategy side. Give us a sense of some of, the, some of the people you had an opportunity to collaborate with.
0: Yeah, I started out working with pro athletes. So I did websites for people like Steve Nash, Shaquille O'Neal, Warren Sapp. And that was fun, except the problem is that you don't really work with the athletes very much. You work with their agents and sports agents are the biggest jerks in the entire (laughs) world because they want, they need to be the jerks for the athletes. So the athlete looks good. Exactly. So their job is to be awful (laughs) for their client. So it was very difficult to deal with. Then I kind of moved into doing consulting for, for bigger companies like Microsoft, Mercedes Benz, BMW, Yahoo, that sort of thing. And that was... That was kind of fun and that definitely looks good on like a, like a business resume, but you also become a cog in that huge machine where yeah. I want sign off for this one thing and they have to have a meeting, about a meeting with other stakeholders. And it just, everything took so long, even yeah. getting paid took so long. Small businesses don't need to get paid on net 120. Like that's just <laughs> ridiculous. And then finally I moved into, because I, I kept thinking like, I, I wanna always compete at top of market, bottom of market is just a race to the bottom in terms of like price and turnaround yeah yeah, I wanted yeah. to be the top, the top of market. So I started to think like, who values what I do the most? And what I did was all online things. So I figured, okay, online entrepreneurs—they're yeah. the ones who value the the work and the skill set that I have the most and are willing to pay the most for it because their revenue is completely determined by that work. Yeah. So then I started to work with people like Marie Forleo, Danielle Laporte, Chris Carr, and people who were kind of building like at the forefront of building brands yeah. online and building services and building brands kind of around their personality and selling things that were based a lot on that. Mm -hmm. So I ended up learning, I I learned so much about business from those women (laughs) that I worked with. And that's really how I modeled my own business too. Yeah.
1: So, so get us to the book, like tell us what inspired the book and the, and the, you know, kind of focusing on the content side and the publishing side. You know, it's a lot of people talk about writing books, publishing those kind of things. Tell us about that when that idea first came up, how you kind of selected your strategy, how you found the people, how you developed the content. And I know you just launched a couple of days ago and, I, you know, the podcast is always a, uh, delayed a little bit in terms of release, but, you know, you're, you're hot and heavy in this in this process right now.
0: Yeah. So it's funny because so the book is really about questioning growth when it makes sense for your business and when it doesn't. And for myself, I'd always been like when I started my business, even though I wasn't good at the business side of things in the beginning, I was always busy and I was always seeing success with my work. And there's this social push and there's this kind of like idea that, oh, well, you're doing well. Like, why don't you hire somebody? Why don't you hire another person? Why don't yeah. you build this into it? Like your book six months in advance, Paul, like, why don't you hire a team? And my thought was, and my, my pushback to that was always, well, I don't want to, like, <laughs> I, I enjoy the, I enjoy the work. And I also don't like managing people. And I don't, that's not even a skill that I want to foster. And some yeah. people are brilliant managers and they're put on this planet to work In settings where they manage other people. That's not me. And I know that's not me. And I know that I never wanted to promote myself out of a job I actually like doing. So I like doing design. I like doing writing. I want to keep doing those things. And so that's kind of how I've always run my business. And then I started to write about that, but I figured I was the only one. Like I figured I was the, the business weirdo who just wanted to have like a small business that was very successful, but but stayed very small intentionally. But then I started to write about it to my newsletter. I think, I, I think the article is called something like why I don't care about growth. And I usually get 150, 250 replies to my weekly newsletter. Yep. And I sent this and I was just like, this is just going to be something that people are like, okay, good yeah, for yeah, you, Paul. Yeah. I got like twelve hundred replies to that email <laughs> from people being like <laughs> I thought I was you the only one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I thought I thought I was the only one who didn't want to grow like a big empire, or a massive business. And I had written I think 4 self-published books at that point. But I figured, let's see what traditional publishing is like. I actually knew zero about traditional publishing. So I actually asked my mailing list. I'm like, I want to see if I can traditionally publish this. Does anybody know an agent? And I just, I asked my mailing list this, I think at the, the first email of the year, I think three years ago. And a few people did, and they were like, oh, "I can make an introduction to you." So I talked to a few agents. The agents wanted to work with me, so I picked the best one. Kind of like I, I'm kind of on the other side of things, where I was the client and they were the, yeah. the service-based business. So I was like, "How do I evaluate this from the other end?" Because I'm used to being.
1: How do with I the not others. just get even for all those times that I've been on the other side? Exactly.
0: So I found an agent who I thought we had the best communication with mm-hmm. who I thought really understood the book. And really she wanted to work with me and the other agents wanted to work with me because they knew that they could sell this idea to publishers. Yeah. Because that's what agents do is they, so I worked on a book proposal with her and we shopped it around. A couple publishers were interested. And then I picked, I picked the publisher that had the editor who wanted to work on my book because he edited Cal Newport's books. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Cal Newport. I love Cal, I love- yeah. Yeah, I love deep work and so yeah. good. So I was like, if this guy's good enough for Cal, he's <laughs> definitely good enough for me. He ended, up being a, uh, yeah, he ended up being a great, great editor and just really made the book keep my voice because I definitely have a very unique and odd writing style, but really hammered home the points. He worked with me to really get the points to be as clear as possible. And so, yeah, that it's probably been about three years from me saying I want to do this book to it being published. So it's that, definitely been how, a slow turnaround. Yeah,
1: well, tell me, tell me about the content process for you. I mean, what I mean, always, you know, I find creative folks, you know, typically have a process, right? They have a flow. They they have ways of kind of getting into the into the mindset, into the state of being able to write in those ways. How did you set it up given that you were, I'm assuming you were still you were still working with clients, you were still doing work. How did you integrate that?
0: Yeah, so I, I basically keep all of my income streams for what I do separate. And so the writing over the last few years has been making a decent amount of money. And I was like, okay, well now I'm a client. Basically, I'm hiring myself as a client to do writing. And so I blocked off, I think it was, Three months, It took me three months start to finish to write the first draft. And that was just me every day sitting like that was my job every day. I sat down. It typically were like I basically did a chapter a week or so. So I would start the first day with writing the outline. These are the points I want to make. I would spend probably three days doing research and interviews and looking for looking for the right studies to that either made the point for me or that showed me that that point wasn't valid to make. It was just a point that I thought worked for me. And an N of one data set is way too small. So I needed to find either other stories or or data to support each of the points. And then I would spend two days writing the chapter. And then the next week, and then I would share that with Rick, my editor, and then I would do the next chapter and then I would. And so it just basically like. I turned it into a process pretty much exactly the same as, as the way that I used to do client work, is, okay, what's the best process to get the best work product and be the most efficient with our time? And I, I just basically turned that around on its head to, to focus on, on the writing. Yeah.
1: Well, I like the idea you, you became your own client. I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. you sort of treated yourself like a client. Okay, well, how would I structure a project for a client? And then I would just do it that way. And I mean, you know, other than the kind of, the potential schizophrenic, uh, you know, <laughs> outcome of it. You know, that, that, I like that idea. Is- and, and the other thing is like, what's the benefit? Like, why are you doing this? Like, it, it ends up creating a nice idea of a customer that I'm serving uh, that I can use to help make decisions and drive focus and prioritize and things like that. Any any big uh, surprises, takeaways, learnings from from going through that process versus the other, the other books that you've written or the other uh, writing work that you've done? How is it different? Yeah, I guess?
0: yeah it takes a lot more time. Like, I could write <laughs> another book. Like, if I was self-publishing this, it would have come out a year and a half ago but because there's a lot more people working on it. And I always try to find people who I feel are smarter than me. Like I don't want to work with somebody if I don't feel like they can bring as much or more to the table as me, which I mean, in my case, it's not hard to find people smarter than me, but I'm always looking for the people who are like the best at what they do. Like if I, if I'm going to work with an editor, I want it to be Cal Newport's editor because I know he is like going to be a phenomenal editor. So it just, there was just a lot more that went into it. And it's funny. So I finished writing the man manuscript last September. And I was like, there's so much time. There's so much time. The book doesn't come (laughs) out for so long. And then as I got into it, I'm like, as it got like November, December, yeah. I was like, oh, there's not enough time. Like there's not enough time. <laughs> we are all coming of my up way go? too fast. Yeah. yeah, because there's so much work that goes into getting the book out. Like I started doing interviews and publicity in November yeah. for the January, the mid-Jan release. And I started working on like additional resources that go along with the book, like the podcast that I have that's called Company of One, the course that I have that goes with it, the community that I'm building. So, there's all of these other little pieces. Even the probably one of the biggest pieces, too, was the pre order campaign, where if somebody pre ordered the book, if they ordered one copy, they got this amount of stuff. If they ordered five, they got this. If they ordered 25, they got that. Because I wanted to drive sales because all of the pre, if somebody isn't an author, they might not know this. All of the pre-sales that happen prior to launch date count as a sale on day one. So if I can sell 10,000 pre-orders, then that counts as 10,000 sales on on the first day, which makes a difference on Amazon. It makes a difference on on the bestseller list. It makes a huge difference. So that was really the drive for me was, okay, how can I get the most pre-orders as possible? And what am I willing to give people to, to drive those sales? Because... People are paying money for something they're not going to get for a while.
1: Yeah. And so I need to sweeten the deal. Delayed, to- delayed gratification is tough. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> People don't like that typically. Yeah. So let's talk about the book a little bit. So I think the, the you know, there's always this question, or there's a, I think, an assumption at some level that, and you mentioned it before, it's like, oh, you, you're a successful in some field and some capability, technologies, design, writer, you know, packaging expert, you know, like whatever you are. It's like, oh, well, you know, Build a business around it, like and and make a big business around it. So I think there is this often assumption, and I often get people coming to me with like, oh, I want to I wanna scale this thing, and and I think there's that assumption is not always correct, or at least needs to be questioned at some level. How like what do you think are the the questions or what's your checklist or what are the things that th- you think people really need to consider before they kind of endeavor on, you know, trying to sort of quote unquote scale through adding people and creating a big organization around this versus you know really focusing on how to optimize and you know scale your impact without actually scaling the people behind it what what are some of the the questions that you ask or things that you encourage people to think about
0: yeah so i think a lot of it comes down to like the the purpose uh, in at the onset like for myself i started working for myself because i was like oh i can have more freedom doing this so no business decision that i make should impact, should negatively impact the freedom that I want to have in my life. So I don't want the responsibility of having to manage or have employees, manage or have employees. So that's a decision that I always make. So I kind of use purpose as my filter for decisions. So it becomes the lens that I make decisions through. And then I also think about things like enough. And I think enough is kind of the biggest point in the book. And I feel like that is the counterbalance or the antithesis to unchecked growth. Because I agree, we need growth and we all need to start with a growth mindset because we all need to go from zero to one. We all need to go from zero to profitability, zero to having customers. But then there comes a point where growth might not make sense. And I mean, it's so dependent on the business you run. So for example, Airbnb, if they had two properties that you could rent, like their business probably would not do well. They need a critical mass. But for a business like mine that does like courses and software, I don't need that many. Like if my expenses are really low, if I can run a very lean operation, I only need hundreds or thousands of, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds or thousands of customers for my business to generate enough money. And I think, especially for owner-operator businesses, a business is, is only profitable if it has margins, but also if it makes enough money to make that owner operator comfortable in their lives. Like a business isn't really profitable if it's just you, unless it's also paying for like your rent or mortgage or or all of that separately, of course, you need to keep those things separate. So I'm always looking at that, like what do I need in my life? And like, is my business generating enough income to do that? Do I have enough customers where I can focus on retention over acquisition? Because retention is cheaper, faster and easier than going out and finding new people. And so I think, unless we think, like, is this more in whatever the question it is in our business? Like, is this more actually better? Sometimes it is. And then it makes sense. Sometimes it might not be. And I think a lot of times we don't consider the, I guess, the maintenance costs or the obligation debt of doing things or making things bigger, where if I added more to my business or if I added more people to my business or added like an office or, or some bigger expense to my business would it be better? Because there might be maintenance costs that I don't want to maintain. There might be obligations that I now have that I don't want. Like, I think a lot of it comes down to, especially for myself personally, is like, how does this growth affect my happiness or my purpose or how I actually want to spend my day working? Because I know the things that I like doing in my business. And I know the things, the daily things that I like to do that one makes my business money because you need to have profit, but two makes me actually enjoy the work
1: yeah and I think it 's hard I mean I think one of the things that I find is for folks that are in professions you know, doing work that is a creative or or they have sort of an it gives them intrinsic value in some way, this ends up being kind of this critical question or critical issue because as they Ponder actually kicking a business and growing a business around this. Your focus becomes around the business and not about doing the work. It, it, typically, I find it in technology. I work with a lot of kind of tech startups and stuff where you know you, an entrepreneur, a founder who is a brilliant technologist, uh, you know in some, you know in security or analytics or AI or something, and they they get to you know fifty, hundred people, and all of a sudden they find that they're spending all of their time going out and raising money or managing people or meeting with it's like they have no connection. You kind of have to ask the question, well, what do you really want to do? And do you want to stay? Do you want to be you focus on building the business or you and we focus on being an expert and, you know, excelling at this, this domain. And it's a kind of an existential question for a lot of folks. And, and if, and sometimes they've gotten so far down it, we got to make some pretty big changes to get them back to it. But I think that's one of the areas I think folks that kind of get into the business because they love doing business and they're, they really don't, they're not into it for the actual product and the service per se, then it's, it's less of an issue. I don't know. I I don't know if that fits with kind of what you've seen or, or kind of the, the world that you've uh,
0: interacted with. Yeah, no, I I think it totally does. And I think there's so many different, and I think that's really what the book is about is that there isn't this single track. There isn't, the book has no answers. (laughs) I like to tell people, like, it's not a (laughs) blueprint or a formula for anything. It's more a way to think about your business, to come to the best decisions for your business. Because I don't know your business. I know what's right for me and my business, but I don't know what's right for everybody. Because if we're kind of sold this idea that business success looks like this one thing or a business leader looks like this one type of person or growth looks like this one thing, then we're kind of shuttering the the doors to other people who may be really good entrepreneurs or maybe really good at running a business, but they're like, oh, I don't see like, I don't think I want to run a business because the way that business looks doesn't fit what I yeah. want. Yeah. And I'm like, it can be run in so many different ways. There's so many different ways to to have a successful, profitable, durable business. That is not just that you don't have to be Elon Musk to do things, working 80 hour plus a week, sleeping on a couch, being afraid to go on vacation. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't need to be like, like and honestly, it doesn't need to be like that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think there's, uh, I mean, I, I had a tech company for many years and, and we were very disciplined on, you know, no more than 50 hour weeks. You know, I don't think, I think it worked more than Three or four weekends over ten years, um, just because it was yeah. that, you know. And in fact, I think it, it made me a, a better CEO and a better leader by doing that. I mean, it wasn't that, oh, well, I have to give all these things up. I think it actually made us better doing that. But yeah, but it's hard. It's a mindset, and I think there's a lot of things in the kind of business world and the entrepreneurial world that I don't think are necessarily great patterns or expectations behaviors. And I'm mm-hmm. glad, I'm glad to see people trying to undo those or at least bring on counterpoints. So we talked about some big things around the book. I think one one topic that I, I found really interesting that I want to kind of dive in or, or talk about briefly was. This idea of following your passion, because I think that, uh, you know, that's this kind of, you know, common wisdom or or this thing, piece of advice that a lot of people give, well, just, you know, pick something you're passionate about and, you know, and don't worry about anything else. As long as you're following your passion, you're going to be successful. I always have problems with that. <laughs> I guess why is this kind of a topic that you cover and, and give us a sense of why you cover it?
0: Yeah, I think I think we have it in, re- or I think experts have it in reverse. I think that we get passion from the work we do once we've been doing it and once we master it. So I think that passion is the side effect uh, of mastery, not the other way around. I also think it's really stressful. So many people I talk to don't know what their passion is, and they're like, oh, "I'm supposed to follow my passion. I don't know what my passion is," and it's <laughs> or they have too many. Stressful. I've got, I've got 50 things. (laughs) Exactly. Like I'm super passionate about watching Marvel series on Netflix. Like that's not going to make me any money. I suck at reviewing TV shows. (laughs) And so, but then like, when I think about my life, like I didn't want to be a writer. Like I had no aspirations as a child to be a writer or designer or even own a business. But as I started to see like, okay, this is something that's in demand. Like this is a skill that I have that's in demand. Like, why don't I just do this thing and why don't I just see if I like it or not? I mean, I've started businesses where I've realized after I have started them, it's not the business for me and then sold the business, which is fine. But I, I feel like I have become passionate about the work that I do after I've done it for a while, after I've really gotten into it. And I think that in doing that, it also relieves so much stress. Like I don't have to follow my passion. I just have to do work that like, I know I'm going to get paid for. I know that makes some kind of difference, whether it's one person or a thousand people, like doing what you love is such a tricky thing because it, there's so many negative side effects to trying to just do that. Like, Oh, I didn't love my work today. Like I'm not doing what I love. It's like some days I hate my work. Some days I'm stressed out. Some days I want to fire every single one of my clients. But in general, I really enjoy it in general. I feel like it's giving me meaning and purpose. And in general, the more I do it, the more I get excited about it. So I feel like I feel like we have to work in reverse to that, like follow your passion, tired advice. We have to do work and then see what we're passionate as we're doing it. And then we can move closer to that and more in alignment with that. Whereas if somebody told me to follow my passion, I don't know, I'd probably be out on a surfboard. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Instead of be sitting at an office. Well, I like that idea of kind of
1: reframing it as mastery. I mean, it's something developing mastery on something is is what will give you passion and kind mm-hmm. of inverting, you know, that ordered pair a little bit. Because I think you're right. I think a lot of people either don't know what their passion is or have a lot of potential passions. And yeah. it is kind of this choice. And you kind of look at where there's demand is. I like to think about it as like, where can I create impact? Like, how can I mm-hmm. impact the world? How can I impact, uh, you know, other people positively by, by taking something that I have... You know, capability around, you know, aptitude and and develop it as a master and then and then increase the impact that I'm going to have through mastery as opposed to just, okay, well, it's fun. You know, fun is good, but I don't think fun is really satisfying, you know, from a from a bigger picture long term. You're not going to you're not going to focus on that for 10, 15,
0: 20 years. And those kind of passions, I think, are just fickle flames. I look at the hobbies that I have. They're different than five years ago, than 10 years ago. And it's like the work that I do hasn't changed that much in 20 years. But the the passions that I have 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 shifted so many times. Yeah, I've got a storage unit full of
1: uh, gear from various (laughs) sports that I've gotten into for periods of time. (laughs) Oh, good. So uh, the book covers a lot of really interesting things. So I encourage people to go check that out. And I will say this. I think, you know, that the idea of company of, although we're focused on company of one in terms of the idea of how as an individual really kind of you know scale their impact without scaling the business. I think this is the, the ideas here are super applicable to anyone, even particularly you know, people that are you know in small business situations or looking to grow the business. The concepts are really important. So I would encourage everyone to check it out. Paul, if people want to get more information about you, about the book, what's the best way to get a hold of that?
0: Yeah, so the book Company of One: Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business is on Amazon and in most you should be able to find it in most bookstores. The website is ofone.co. oneco and then I've mentioned my newsletter. My newsletter is at pjrvs.com or if you Google Paul Jarvis and I share weekly articles about the things that I'm thinking about and working on and and book ideas 3 years before the book actually comes out.
1: <laughs> awesome. I'll make sure that all of those links uh, and information are on the show notes. Paul, this is a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak.